In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, raise your hand if you've ever been to Merle's Inlet down on the South Carolina coast. Yeah, so not far from there in Georgetown is a place, watch as the hands go down. How many of you have ever been to this place called Brook Green Gardens? Several of you. Wonderful, sprawling acres upon acres of fields and walkways and trees and among all things, imagine that, gardens. And then nestled in the gardens in the landscape is all this wonderful sculpture that they have just aptly picked for every different corner. It's a wonderful place if you have a chance to go. It has a fantastic zoo also. But it also has these exhibits, these art exhibits, that are usually rotating exhibitions. And we had an opportunity to go and visit one not so long ago, even several weeks ago. And as I was walking through the gallery, um, this piece caught my eye. It's by um, an artist uh, who studied at the University of Spain, Angela um, Vega de la Mia. So she's a good Irish woman. Um, <laughs> the name of this piece is called The Bridge of Brotherhood. It's bronze. It's lovely. And I saw this sermon coming, and so I had to take the picture. The faces are different. They're all looking in a similar direction. And there is not the slightest bit of, slightest bit of uh, estrangement, animosity, or curiosity among them. They are on a bridge of brotherhood. And it's lovely. When you walk in an art gallery, um, there's something true of almost everything you see. Everything there is precious because they wouldn't put it in a gallery if they didn't think so. But the other thing that is true of a gallery is that everything in there is fragile. You even knock over that bronze, it's going to be damaged. You pull anything down from that wall, it may never be the same again. And that's why they keep the room at the just the right temperature and humidity. It's why they've got everything anchored very well. It's what they've got the people in the coats sitting there at the chairs, making sure that you don't lean over and wipe your nose on something. It's what they do, because everything in there is both precious and fragile. And it would be the responsibility of those that are responsible for it and anybody that's witnessing it to take care of that nature, that dual nature of everything in an art gallery. I want to talk about something today that is just like everything in that art gallery that is both precious and fragile. And that thing is the unity among brethren. In the last 18 months, you have may have felt all sorts of emotions. Some of those have been like defensive emotions. Some of them may have been offensive emotions. Others may you just want to kind of bug out and want it to all go away and wake me up when September ends. But if there's anything that's been tested in the last 18 months, it's whatever unity exists within any number of bodies, including the church at large, and who are we to say that we're immune from that same predicament? We're not. This morning we're listening, for the very last time for the, this series for this summer, we're listening to, to a short song, the last song in a series of psalms that Israel would sing on their way to have a feast in Jerusalem. And that psalm has everything to do with unity. And I think I need to hear it in a moment like this. And maybe you do too. And in these three verses we're going to consider three things about this unity. One, what is it? Two, why is it good? And three, how do we preserve it? What is this unity? Why does it matter? Why is it good? And most importantly, how do we preserve it? 
to wrap up our series on the Psalms today, we have a special treat. One of our elders, Jeff Leader, is going to come up and not only read this passage, he's going to sing it to you in the original language. Jeff? Good morning. Good morning. Most of you who know me know that uh, before I became a Christian, I was raised in the Jewish faith. And also, those of you who know me know that I have a passion for prison ministry. So before COVID, we would have a monthly reunion basically with the church inside Craggy Prison here in Weaverville. The chaplain had asked me to lead worship this one Thursday night. And while I was driving up to the prison, for some reason the Lord laid on my heart a scripture that we used to sing in Hebrew school about 50 years ago. And it was uh, Psalm 133, so we had a lot of fun with it, teaching it to the uh, church and prison inmates inside. And I'd like to share that with you, but I'd also like to hope that you would get that feeling of joy and anticipation, just longing to see the brethren inside who are behind bars. Maybe you'll feel that way when you come to church Sunday morning and seeing your brethren. So. Hine matovu manayim shevetachim gam yachad. Hine matovu manayim shevetachim gam yachad. Hine shevetachim gam yachad. Hine How blessed it is when the brethren who dwell in love together. How blessed it is when the brethren do dwell in love together. how good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down the beard, the beard of Aaron, running on the collar of his robe. It's like the dew of Hermon that falls on the mountain of the Lord in Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. This is God's word, Psalm 133. Thanks, Jeff. I'll bet you've never heard somebody sing in Hebrew in a Hawaiian shirt. You're welcome. We're going to talk about unity. We better define our terms first. We're going to let the psalmist define our terms. Behold, 
brethren, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And that's all lovely, and we all want to start singing the theme song from the Waltons. Da 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 da, right? When brethren dwell together in unity. It's a wonderful thing. In fact, the original, probably, idea that led the psalmist to write this passage comes from Exodus. Um, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 25, it talks about how when you have several families living together as a clan, as a tribe, what does it offer you? Assistance? Hey, I need help with the land. Um, Protection? Dude, these marauders are coming. Um, Solidarity? Hey, I think people are coming after us. Can we kind of bind up and circle the wagons here? All of those things are great, and you understand that. Same way with Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Probably the most cynical book in the entire Old Testament, but at least... The writer of Ecclesiastes knows this. Two are better than one. Woe to the person who is alone, he says. Two will keep warm. One may be able to defend himself. Two are better, but oh, a cord of three strands will not be quickly broken. Of course it's good and pleasant. It's a great functional value. It's why anybody would want that. Um, Maybe you saw the film Witness. 1985, Harrison Ford, our local Brevardian Kelly McGillis, right? An Amish family back east, right? And, and the, the whole scene that they're raising the barn, and if you stick around for the congregational meeting, you'll see that scene once more. But it's, it's a wonderful thing. It's not just a bunch of people getting together to raise a barn. It's certainly that, but it's more than that. It is developing something among them for the sake of one, but it's for the sake of all. And there's a lot of lemonade to go around for everyone. That thing is beautiful in and of itself. How good and pleasant when people raise a barn together in unity. Uh, Just as COVID was descending in my neighborhood last May, um, you know, we're kind of, hey, how's it going? Great, keep your distance. Hey, how's it going? Right, so what do we do? We, we We did an online talent show. Everybody sent in videos. We compiled them. We, you know, pulled out iMovie. We compiled them all together, and we did a watch party over Facebook, and it was everybody bringing their favorite talents and, and, and maybe the talents that should have been kept hidden. But everybody, everybody got to share something, and we got to see each other's talents. We got to vote, and we gave prizes. It was wonderful. Nobody had to tell us, gosh, I wonder if this will be pleasant. It was great. How good and pleasant it was for brethren and neighborhoods to dwell together in unity. But let's, let's, let's pause here a little bit. Um, there may be more to it than, than its good and pleasantness in that respect. But what does the New Testament say about unity? What, what does it speak of when it's talking about unity? How does it define it through the multiple examples of it? And there's a host of them. And um, it all comes down to, if you just do a, a, a word search on the phrase, one another, in the New Testament, you're going to come up with a dozen or more expressions of how do, you, how do you show unity with one another? All of those. Don't worry, there will not be a quiz, but there is a test. Love one another. Be in harmony with one another. Teach one another. Instruct one another. Submit to one another. Show hospitality to one another. Be patient with one another. Bear with one another. Forgive one another. It's thick, friends. It is thicker than sitting next to each other in a room. It is thicker than sharing coffee. It is thicker than waving to each other in the parking lot. It is, it is so thick. It is much thicker. It is, it is the difference between soap bubbles and maple syrup thick. That's what unity looks like. That's what unity calls from us. It's more comprehensive. 
It's more demanding. It requires more of us than we perhaps even knew, but and yet if we, if we realize that that's what it's asking us, and if that was true of us, oh my, what a different world it would be. It, it's not, this unity is not to be confused with uniformity. We are not all the same. And, and it doesn't even refer to being universally in agreement all the time. Come on. Do you think everybody on leadership in this church for all the decisions that we've had to make have been of one mind at all times? Ha! Are you kidding me? It was never going to happen. But this kind of unity, it works for something greater than itself. It just doesn't drift and walk. It's thicker and it's harder. And yet it's good and pleasant. Why? For Let's talk about some of those reasons why the psalmist says it's good and pleasant. So here's, here's point two. That's what, what is it? Now let's talk about why is it good. He, the psalmist, maybe a she, the psalmist gave us two reasons why unity in the brethren is good and like this. And the first reason kind of has two parts to it. And it all comes down to the really vivid imagery that goes really fast right by you. The, the first one from verse two. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. What, what is that? Did they spill? Um, was somebody bringing it for, like, to add to the fettuccine? Why is, it, why is it spilling on his beard? No. In Exodus 25, God commands Israel to pour oil upon the altar, upon the table, and upon Aaron, who would be a priest. He would be at the head of the order of the priesthood, a Levite. And the oil was, here's your big word for the day, I promise I'll unpack it, the oil of consecration. The oil of being set apart to a particular service. If you go to med school, med school does not begin with a class. Med school begins with a ceremony. And at that ceremony, you walk up, I'm hurt, I hear, four at a time, and you are carrying a white jacket, a short white jacket, on your arm. And you stand up there in front of all your peers and behind you are what are going to be the teachers for the next four to six years of your life. And they take that white white jacket and they place it upon your arms and they place it upon you. Why? You haven't done a single assignment yet. This is not about merit. You haven't earned a thing yet. You may flunk out for all they know. But on that day, they put that short white coat on you to remind you that you have been set apart for something sacred. And whispering in your ear comes the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. On that day, you're being set apart for a purposeful service. Friends, that's that's what the whole Aaron oil thing is going. That's why unity is a good thing. Unity is what sets us Wherever it lands, it sets us apart for purposeful service. Kids, some of you have been on a team. Some of you have been in a club. Some of you have been part of a theater troupe. Some of you part of an academic decathlon, whatever it might have been. You've been in a club, something like that. And, and all that was great. And if you're on the football team, you know, there's a certain enjoyment about going, huh, pads, yeah, pads, awesome, right? There's, that's great. We're all wearing this stuff together, but that's not the greatest joy of it. The greatest joy is you're going to go hit something. 
The joy is about what you do together as a function of your unity. You suit up, you're ready, you hit it. That's the goodness of it. You are prepared for purposeful service. You've been set apart unto a task, and that is true of every group you've ever been a part of. That's why it's good. Look, you want to talk about baseball movies? Look, there's Bull Durham, there's Field of Dreams, there's League of Their Own, but that didn't, none of those hold a candle to this one. 1976, Walter Matthau, Tatum O'Neill, Bad News Bears. A bunch of street kids who cuss like sailors, and they spit on each other and despise each other, and somehow they're part of this baseball team, and, and Walter Matthau has got to sort of corral them, but he's about as exciting as, you know, watching paint dry. And, but somehow in the midst of it, it's because of the game, because of the game, it draws them something together among them that they did not have before. Rather than kicking at each other, razzing each other, walking off the field all the time, now they start defending one another. Now they start watching each other's back. Now they start spurring one another on for the game, for the love of each other. It is good and pleasant when that unity is in place. It will always be good. So what's our game? What is the game of this body gathered here today? What's your game? Here's your game. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's your game. That's my game. What does that look like? This high-sounding Presbyterian language. What does that sound like? Here's what it sounds like. Let's, let's, let's rewind the tape to the earliest moments of the church. Acts chapter 2. What does it say? Here's the church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And what happened when that unity started to manifest? Here's what happened. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. That's a pipe dream, right? And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In their unity, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one hope, one love, one belovedness, something happened among them that as we spoke of in the New Testament reading and as I prayed earlier, became an act of persuasion. That in fact, what they were together was its own argument for the legitimacy of this thing that nobody was going to believe. Right, God in the flesh, sure. Oh, the first witnesses of the resurrection, women. Ha, huh. tell me another one. Oh, oh, the part about how we're all equal in him. Ha, <laughs> ha. Resurrection. You're kidding. Somehow it became plausible. Somehow for those who had no category for this and certainly no interest in joining on with this group saw what was among them and realized maybe there is something more to this than I thought. Yes, unity is good and pleasant because it sets us apart for purposeful service. That's one part of why it's desirable. The other part of why it's desirable comes from what you hear in verse 3. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Mount Hermon is about 100 miles north of Jerusalem, and it is just like Western North Carolina. Lush, green, the rain will not stop. There is dew in the morning. Jerusalem, not so much. Dry, arid, rocky, stony. Rain's a good day. Rain's a rare day. But when the dew of Mount Hermon 
in, in the imagery of the psalmist is making its way, falling its way all the way down to where Jerusalem is. It's a blessing. It refreshes. It renews what Jerusalem does not have. That's the picture of what unity is when it sets its place among a people. We who are dry and arid and are in need of refreshment, where unity exists, that begins to take hold. That begins to refresh us in ways that we cannot do for ourselves. But unity has to exist there. It renews us for life. It's precious. It's fragile. But when it works, oh, does it work. When one of you is sick and unity is at work, others will rush to the wound. When one of you is weary or depressed, one of you will come alongside to encourage. When one of you is weeping, Where unity exists, they will sit alongside you and weep with you. When one is rejoicing, they will add, they will complement the joy that you're feeling when unity is at work. And when you are being foolish and you do not care, then where unity exists, someone will come alongside you as if to say to you, you are killing yourself. It's what unity does. It refreshes us. It's like that that last point. It's like what the psalmist says in Psalm 141. Let a righteous man strike me. It's a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. That can only happen in relationship. And that can only happen where unity exists among a people. It is good. It is pleasant. It is desirable. But there's one other thing that it is that's not only desirable as it is fragile. This unity is also divine. And I take that from a very subtle indication in the whole passage. There's a, there's a word that you probably heard translated into English twice, but it's actually it's the same Hebrew word that shows up three times in the entirety of the short psalm. It's the Hebrew word yored. And you heard it spoken of in the the oil falling down upon Aaron's bird, falling down upon his robes. But it's also the same Hebrew verb for the dew, falling down on Jerusalem. For the psalmist to use the same word three times in a short psalm, he's out to telegraph us something, and it's this. Unity, for as desirable as it might be, and therefore something that we would all long to seek, It is nothing short of divine. In other words, it's a miracle where it shows up. We want to make our place with seeing unity come about in our reality, but it is a miraculous thing for it to happen. And that, in some ways, that's a relief, right? Because if it's all in us, uh, come on. It is divine because it comes from him. That's why, look, for all of the persuasiveness of the unity among us, um, Francis Schaeffer said the final apologetic for Jesus is love. It has persuasive power because it is both desirable and because it is divine. It falls down, and we need it to do so. It doesn't just happen. We, we don't just sort of flip a few switches and have a few groups and you, you know, give you 14 sermons on what unity looks like. It doesn't happen. And there's so many days where it, like, you just want to give up. No, it's not easy. Thankfully, it's a miracle. Now, that, that might seem 
I'm making a point from, from too subtle a feature of the passage. But you know who made it really explicit to prove to us that unity was a miracle? It was Jesus, and you've already heard him say it because you heard it in the New Testament reading. Of all the things he could have prayed for, he prays that he would be glorified, that the Lord would be glorified in what he is about to do on a cross. And he prays that the disciples, he prays that the disciples would be protected and kept and sanctified. But in between those two prayers, he prays for this, that they would be one. That they would be one as he and the Father are one who have loved eternally and served one another eternally. He would pray for that. Why would he pray for that? Because he knew it wasn't going to happen otherwise. He knew it was necessary for God to intervene, to do something for us, that that unity might be true among us. He prayed for that, and he didn't just pray for that, friends. He died for it. Because there will never be this among us unless we first believe that he has died to unite us to the Father at this cross. And that gets us then to the sound of the punchline here. Why is it good? It's desirable. It's, it's, it sets us apart for purposeful service. It, it renews us in life, the life that we need. But it's divine because it has to come from him. So what do we do with that? Where do we go with that? When you join this church, if you join this church, you'll make vows to mark your, your entrance into this community. And one of those vows is, will you study the peace and purity of the church, which is just a highfalutin way of saying, will you labor for it? And anybody that, that ends up becoming an elder or a deacon or a deaconess in this church, whom you'll be nominating over the next two weeks, right? Whom you'll be nominating over the next two weeks, right? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more. They will make a vow. And that vow will be to maintain the truths of the gospel and the purity, peace, and unity of the church. How will they do that? How will they come to acknowledge that this unity is both precious and fragile? How will they come to acknowledge that we are not merely passive actors in the formation and development of unity in our midst? That's why I'll show you the, the slide one more time. Remember all those things that speak about one another? How will that ever be true for us? I can't just tell you, hey, hey, forgive one another. Right, why? Why? How? Look, what you and I will have to do if we ever want to see unity both developed and preserved among us is to keep that in the center of our being. It will always have to be in view. Because when the cross is in view, it changes the entirety of the conversation. It's no longer merely saying, can we just get along? You know what? We won't. It can't be saying, hey, can we all just agree? Hey, we won't. It's actually not saying, never have any disputes. Paul and Barnabas had disputes, and for a season they had to split, and in time they reunited. Or they came to a reunion or a reconciliation on the issue that first drove them apart. There will be disputes. But it's this thing that keeps us from spitting at each other. And that's why I would say that when that is in view, there's a certain matrix of things that have to be in place 
that you will know when they are there, unity can reign in its four things. Truth, love, dignity, and humility. Are you accountable to the truth? Is love your aim? Do you have a commitment to the dignity of the other one, no matter how vehemently opposed you are to the position that they hold? And do you do all of that from a great posture of humility? These are like four cornerstones of an edifice. You pull any of them, everything crumbles. But where truth, love, dignity, and humility exist, all of which derive from what we believe about the cross, then there's hope. And I think you could distill the entirety of the exercise down to one question that we all have to ask ourselves, and it's this, at any given moment in which we are being tested in our unity. Are you making what you differ over more than what you share in common? Are you ma- I, I have prayed for a sentence this week to try to bring all of this together, and this is the only one I got, so you get what you pay for. Are you making what you differ over more than what you share in common? If Jesus is Lord, then this is what you have in common. You're made in the image of God. And you are enslaved to your own self and to all manner of corruption apart from an intervention from no less than God. But because he chose to intervene, you are beloved. You are forgiven. You are his You are delighted in, and you have an inheritance that cannot be taken from you. If you are despised by everyone, there is a love greater than all of that being despised. If you despise yourself, there is a love greater than no no matter how well you despise yourself. That is what's true of you. That is what you share in common. And when you believe those things, you will always have to ask yourself, is what we are differing over bigger than that? If that becomes our spiritual discipline, who knows what he might do with us. It doesn't mean we won't have any fights. It just means we'll learn how to fight like we have to fight in a marriage. Not to win, but to love. Not to prove that we're right, but to prove that love is right. And when that happens, it will be persuasive. And it will be lovely. I'm going to end in a way that has nothing to do with a proposition. Propositions have their pace, but so do pictures, and sometimes pictures that are wondrously expressed in poetry. The poet you're about to hear is named Ross Gay, and he wrote a poem called To the Fig Tree on Ninth and Christian. And I want you to hear it, and I want you to let it prepare you for the table that we're about to join. Listen to Ross Gay. Tumbling through the city in my mind without once looking up, the racket in the lug work, probably rehearsing some stupid thing I said or did, some crime or other. The city, they say, is a lonely place until, yes, 
the sound of sweeping and a woman, yes, with a broom beneath which you are now too, the canopy of a fig, its arms pulling the September sun to it. And she has a hose too, and so works hard, rinsing and scrubbing the walk, lest some poor sod slip on the silk of a fig and break his hip, but not probably reach over to gobble up the perpetrator. The light catches the veins in her hands when I ask about the tree. They flutter in the air and she says, take as much as you can, help me. So I load my pockets and mouth and she points to the stepladder against the wall to mean more, but I was without a sack, so my meager plunder would have to suffice. And an old woman whom gravity was pulling into the earth loosed one from a low slung branch and its eye wept like hers, which she dabbed with a kerchief as she cleaved the fig with what remained of her teeth. And soon there were eight or nine people gathered beneath the tree, looking into it like a constellation, pointing, do you see it? And I am tall. And so good for these things. And a bald man even told me so when I grabbed three or four for him, reaching into the giddy throngs of yellow jackets, sugar stone, which he only pointed to smiling and rubbing his stomach. I mean, he was really rubbing his stomach like there was a baby in there. It was hot. His head shone while he offered recipes to the group using words which I couldn't understand. And besides, I was a little tipsy on the dance of the velvety heart rolling in my mouth, pulling me down and down into the oldest countries of my body where I ate my first fig from the hand of a man who escaped his country by swimming through the night and maybe never said more than five words to me at once, but gave me figs. And a man on his way to work hops twice to reach at last his fig, which he smiles at and calls baby. Come here, baby, he says, and blows a kiss to the tree, which everyone knows cannot grow this far north, being Mediterranean and favoring the rocky sun-baked soils of Jordan and Sicily, but no one told the fig tree or the immigrants. There is a way the fig tree grows in groves. It wants, it seems, to hold us. Yes, I'm anthropomorphizing. I have twice in the last 30 seconds rubbed my sweaty forearm into someone else's sweaty shoulder, gleeful, eating out of each other's hands on Christian Street in Philadelphia, a city like most, which has murdered its own people. This is true. We are feeding each other from a tree at the corner of Christian and Knight. Strangers, maybe never again. We are feeding each other from a tree, from the fruit of a vine. We eat, and in so doing, strangers, maybe never again. This unity is forged in blood, and it is forged in love. And somehow when we believe it, we are able to see the things that we differ over in a much different light. And even if at the end of the day, we are not in agreement, on this we may agree, that we are both beloved. Beloved, let's go with this word of benediction. May the God of endurance and um, encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The peace of the Lord be with you. See you in 10.